I want to talk about redeeming our nations. In other words, bringing a nation back to what God originally intended that nation should be. I will first of all just touch on Genesis chapter 18. This is when Abraham was out at his tent and some men came along who turned out to be angelic men or Jesus, whatever, we don't know for sure. And they, and they said that we're going to tell Abraham what we intend to do with Sodom and Gomorrah. And so it says in Genesis 18, verse 20, he said to Abraham, the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And then in chapter 19, verse 12 and 13, this is when the man went into Sodom to rescue Lot and his family, who was Abraham's nephew. And this is what he, they said. The two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sisters, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here. Listen, because we are going to destroy this place, the outcry to the Lord against his people is so great that he has sent us to destroy us. I was interested in that term, the outcry against the sin. And reading in Romans 8.22, it tells us that we know, Paul says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. So the Holy Spirit is speaking to Paul. Paul writes it down. All of nature is under this pressure of evil. The evil deeds of man have brought oppression on our nation as far as the natural stuff, the trees, the flowers, the grass, what animals, anything. Nature groans under that because of the sin. And that's what God was saying about Sodom and Gomorrah. There's been a cry come out of that city against Sodom and Gomorrah. And what is that cry? I believe it's a cry of righteousness. Righteousness, which means a right standing with God and a right standing with people. Righteousness was what God intended for man, animals, fish, birds, everything, and all the green vegetation and all, all vegetation. He meant when he created it to live in an atmosphere of righteousness where men are right before God. When God created Adam and Eve, he gave them, he said to Adam, you will rule over. And he talked about the animals and the, and the vegetation, the fish of the sea and so on. Adam gave up that rule, gave it to the, our enemy, the devil. 
when he fell into sin. It's interesting, when God destroyed the earth and saved Noah and his family, when Noah came out of the ark, again God said, I give you the rulership of the earth. <coughs> but through, pardon me, but through the sinfulness of people that followed, we've lost that rulership, we've given it over. And so out of that false leader, Satan is said in scripture, to the, be the, he's the prince of this world. He's deceived the whole world. And that deception cries out against the sin of the people. It cries out against a nation. It cries out against a region of our, whether it be province or community. And you see, that outcry is righteousness, saying, it's wrong. I can't live normally. We need righteousness for everything to be in harmony. People keep blaming each other for the global warming and for all the trouble we have geographically with tornadoes. We always look for someone to blame many times. Tornadoes, we blame God, perhaps, or the weatherman. But you see, we need to stand up as a church, as the people of God, and say, Lord, we want to take our share of responsibility and start to do something about it. So the man God used in the Old Testament was a prophet, Joel. There's many times when God told the children of Israel, this is what you have to do to either keep out of slavery to a heathen nation or to get out after you're in there. This is what you have to do. And the, and the prophets of old had a single message. Repent of your sins. That means turn from your sins. Put God first in your life so that righteousness can then again rule and reign over the whole earth. And so here's Joel. And he's speaking to the elders of Judah and Israel. To Judah, pardon me. And in the first chapter, there has been a swarm of locusts that came across the land, millions of them, ate up everything that was green, the grass, the leaves, the flowers, the vegetables in the gardens, the grain in the fields. It ate it up. And you see, the fields were ruined, it says in verse 10. The ground is dried up. There was nothing to protect the ground from the sun, soaking all the moisture out of it now. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the trees of the field are dried up. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. Their problem was their joy was based on what they had, their prosperity, their plenty. And God took that away and the joy is gone. 
if they had lived in the presence of the Lord by obeying him, doing what he calls them to do, their joy would have been there in spite of what was happening. But because of their sin, God had sent this army of locusts through to destroy. What's he doing? He's trying to get their attention. He's trying to say, come on, Israel, repent of your sin. Turn from your evil ways, and so I can bless you. And he starts that in verse 13. Put on sackcloth, O priest, and mourn. Wail, you, you who minister before the altar. Come, spend the night in sackcloth, which is a humbling. You, you who minister before my God. So he's speaking to the leaders here. In verse 14, there they declare a fast. A fast means I'm putting away my old sinful desires. I'm going to tell my flesh when to eat. It's not going to tell me. That's a, that's a humbling experience. David said in the psalm, I humbled myself with fasting. But you see, this plague of the locust has already happened. And he says to them here, starting in verse 13 to the end of that chapter, if you'll repent, I will, not, I will restore, I will restore everything I've destroyed. If you'll repent, I will do that. Chapter 2, they have not repented. They've lived through the disaster. They've allowed what they say would be a natural occurrence to go through their land. And they say, well, that's just the way it is. Let's go on living the way we always have. I was reading not too long ago that in, I believe it was in 2013, in that one year alone, the United States paid more in restoring things like tornadoes and earthquakes across that land. They spent more in that one year than they had in the previous 10 years. And you see in Matthew 24, the same story in Luke 21 and Mark 11. Jesus saying in the last days, there will be an increase of natural disasters, of storms, of earthquakes destroyed. He says, these are the birth pains. And brothers and sisters, we are in the birth, pain, birth pains of, of God's judgment unless we turn around and do what he calls us here to do. He calls them in Joel chapter 1. If you don't want anything more to happen, repent of your sin. But they didn't. So in chapter 2, again, Joel comes to the people. Blow the trumpet inside. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is close at hand. When the prophets of the Old Testament used the term, the day of the Lord they're not talking about God coming in peace, Jesus return. They're not talking about that. They're talking about a day of judgment that the Lord will bring. He says in verse 2, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and darkness, like dawn spreading across the mountains. A large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old and never will be in ages to come. And it says in verse 3, before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Those aren't locusts. 
Those are people. Those are a person army. And God is saying, I tried to warn you with the locust, and you wouldn't listen to me. Now I have to do something more extreme. I have to bring an army against you. And it says, they'll set fire to stuff. Fire will consume it. And says in verse 3, the third line, before them, the land is like the Garden of Eden, but behind them, it's a desert waste. Nothing escapes them. They, they, they have the appearance of horses. They gallop along that cavalry with the noise like that of chariots. Verse 6, at the sight of them, nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows. Before them, the earth quakes. The sky trembles. The sun, the moon are dark, and the skies no longer shine. Doesn't that sound like what's going on in some nations right now? Fears grip many nations because of this army that's going through taking cities, slaughtering Christian Jews, but even their own people. Anybody that doesn't believe what they believe, they're slaughtering and murdering them, destroying them in any way, raping them, doing whatever. But listen, here's, here's something that staggers me. In verse 11, it says, The Lord thunders at the head of his army. You mean to say God is leasing this? That's what it says. You mean God has raised up this army to bring a judgment on his people? That's what it says. His forces are beyond number, and mighty are those who obey his command. Doesn't say they're faithful Christians. It says they are mighty because they obey. The, Lord, the day of the Lord, that's a term again. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful. Who can endure it? God is trying to say to our nation today, he said this to Israel back then, he's saying it to us today, unless you turn from your sinful ways as a nation, I have to come and bring judgment on that nation. I, will, I have warned you with disasters, I've warned you whether it be tornadoes, earthquakes, or, or rising crime rate, or all the junk that's going on that, that destroys the peace of man and brings fear into their lives. God says, I'm ahead of that army. What's he doing it for? It's because he's trying to save us from something worse, which is eternal damnation. He's trying to save us from hellfire. He's trying to save us for something that isn't just a short period of time. The Bible says it's eternal. How long that is, I don't know. But eternal, without time, it means. It's his army. The day of the Lord is dreadful. And then he says in verse 12, now this is what you can do. Even now, declares the Lord, return. Another word is repent. Change your way. What's repentance? 
We as a nation and as communities and individuals and even the church are often going the wrong way, the way into fleshly indulgence, the way into sin. He says return. That means turn 180 degrees. Go the way of righteousness. And he says, if you, if you return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning, that means, Lord, I am sorry for the way I have lived. Lord, forgive me. Forgive our leaders. Forgive our nation. Forgive church people. Forgive non-church people. Forgive us, Lord. We need to be a people that start to cry out to God as a nation. Lord, forgive us. He says in 13, rend your heart. In other words, and not your garments. In the Old Testament, when, they, when something drastic happened or anger, they'd rip their garment to show how remorseful they were. God said, forget the garments. I want your heart to be torn open. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Listen, if you thought from the first of my teaching he's a cruel God, no, this is what he says about himself. He is gracious, he is compassionate, he is slow to anger and abounding in love, and he will change his mind about the day of the Lord, about judgment, if we will do what he's calling us to do. Return to the Lord. Change your way from that way to righteousness. You say, does the whole nation have to do I don't know. I just know that if a whole bunch of individuals start doing it, it could change some things. I have no idea how much. I just know that some of the revivals in the past that have changed cities, changed countries, have been because three or four or five people persisted in prayer and didn't give up until God moved. Listen what it says in 14. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. Now listen to the blessing. Instead of disaster, he wants to bring a blessing. Now this is in, in light of the time that we're talking about. It was 600 years before Jesus came. So we're back in the time he's talking about. Who knows, they may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing. What's the blessing? Grain offerings, drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly, gather the people consecrate the assembly, bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. Let the priest who minister before the Lord weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the people, where is their God? So God says, if you repent and turn, weep and fast and mourn over, you know, weeping and mourning means, I've hurt you, God, I'm sorry. You created us to enjoy us, but we shook our fist in your face and say, we'll do it our own way. And you were hurt, says in Psalm 78, they pain, the, grieve the heart of God. Back at the time of Noah, when God looked at the sin there, it said he was pained by this. Why? Because 
if a son disobeys a father, it hurts. And my father in heaven was hurt when I disobeyed him. And he says, weep over that. Say, Lord, I'm sorry I hurt you. Most of our repentance has to do with, Lord, save me from my sin because I don't like the circumstances I've got myself into. It's time we start saying, Lord, forgive me because I've hurt you. I've pained the one who loved me so much. I've pained the one who had so much pleasure, so much blessing to give to me, to bring peace and joy into my life. But I rebelled against him. Lord, I am sorry. You not only did a lot, you sent your son to pay the price for my sins so I don't have to pay the price. I still rebel against you. Forgive me, Lord. That should be our prayer. It says in verse 18, if we'll repent, if we'll cry out to God in our time, then the Lord will be jealous for his land and take pity on his people. And the Lord will reply to them, I'm sending you grain, new wine, and oil, enough to satisfy you fully, never again will I make you an object of scorn to the nations. For I'll drive the northern army far from you, pushing it into a parched and bare land. I want to skip to 25. He keeps talking about the blessing. You can read it for yourself. I don't have the time to read it all. He says in verse 25, I will repay you for the years the locusts have eaten, the great locusts and the young locusts and the other locusts and locust swarm. But he's not talking about the locusts from the first chapter, which he promised he'd replace that. Now he's talking about my great army that I sent among you. If you'll repent, I will fix things up again. I will restore. A good example. is the children of Israel. It's actually Judah and Benjamin. When they're in the Babylonian captivity, Daniel recognized that the prophet Jeremiah had said they would be in the Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Daniel said the 70 years is up. But he knew something from Numbers. There's a place in Numbers where it simply says, Numbers 14, he says that when we find ourselves in captivity and we want to be released from that captivity, if you will repent and turn and confess your sins and the sins of your forefathers, then I'll restore the land. So Daniel knew that. The 70 years was up. But somebody had to deal with the sin. Not only his sin if he had any, but the sin of his forefathers. And he prayed that. You go to chapter 9. The, whole, the first 20 verses have to do in general chapter 9. Repenting before the Lord. Nehemiah knew the same thing. Somebody has to deal with the sin. And after he got the children of Israel back to Babylon, the whole group of them in Nehemiah as a body 
was repenting of their sins and the sins of the forefathers. The Lord promises in Colossians 2, verse 13, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all of our sin. That is true of me. It's true of my family. It's true of the church I go to. It's true of my community, my province, my nation. If we'll repent of our sins, if we'll humble ourselves before the Lord, if we'll ask him to forgive us for being such a pain in his heart by rejecting him, he said, I want to restore you. So, Father, oh, how we cry out to you that our nation could be a nation that you originally wanted it to be. How I thank you, Lord. We have the way of doing that, of coming to you, repenting of our sins. And Lord, you want to pour out your spirit. As you said to Joel in that third chapter, you want to pour out your spirit on all flesh. That means everybody in that nation would experience your blessing. If every nation did it, everybody in the world would experience your blessing. Father, open our eyes to understand. In the name of Jesus, amen. website at jwmi.ca to find out about more information of our ministry.